Hi, welcome to my channel. My name is Lisa Allistway. And on this channel, you will find a variety of inspirational and informational videos you can use and apply to your life. My guest today is Dr. Chris Johnson, who is an emergency trained physician and is, and is a nationally recognized expert on the opioid and heroin epidemic. I will be linking his website in the opioid crisis in the description box below for your reference. Welcome, Dr. Johnson. And good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. So could you just share with us a little bit of your background and how you got into um, really studying and researching and uh, talking about this opioid and heroin crisis? Okay. Well, um, uh, my background is emergency medicine and um, my uh, uh, decision to look more into the opioid crisis and become something of an advocate was, was purely accidental. I did not set out to... Um, I did not set out to do with any of this at all, to be honest with you. Um, I, I trained uh, uh, in emergency medicine at Hennepin County Medical Center here in Minnesota. And then I went uh, to work at a, uh, a suburban hospital, community hospital of Minneapolis. Um, and it was there that I made the realization that we've got a very serious problem. And this is around uh, 2004, 2005, so quite some, some time ago. Now, when you're training as a resident physician in a county hospital, you, you do see quite a bit of social pathology. Um, a county hospital, pop, these are often teaching hospitals. And it has a, a teaching hospital population often has a lot of patients who come from, you know, difficult social backgrounds, families that have been uh, uh, distorted with, you know, crime and incarceration. And often that goes with, and mental health problems that, I mean, mental health problems that go untreated. And that can often uh, correlate with, with, problems with substance abuse. And so I actually saw quite a bit of that as a resident physician, but I, uh, I thought I was sort of all done with that when like you, you finish your residency. And for those who don't know uh, uh, medicine or don't, you do a residency is like an, an apprenticeship and, and that's sort of for a defined set period of time. And then you move to some other more uh, regular job type job as a physician. And so after my three-year residency in emergency medicine, I went to a, a suburban hospital and uh, I took a job there in a community. And I kind of had thought that my, uh, the amount of substance abuse issues and opioid issues, which I'd seen plenty of, was, was going to be behind me. But that's not what I discovered, okay? When I went to work for the suburban hospital, I found that I couldn't go a shift without seeing someone having some complication from opioid use. And, and this was what wasn't often heroin, it was prescribed opioids. And they were, Again, you, you, it, was, it was not just me, every physician had this issue. They were, they were having one or more patients with those problems, whether they were overdosing and had to get put on a ventilator or whether they needed Narcan, which is the opioid antidote, or they were coming in with pain and they'd run out of their opioids and they, were, you know, they needed more. And so that's what spurred me to, to investigate, okay, I thought this was behind me. I thought this was different. And it's like, no, this is everywhere. And mm -hmm. so it became... a. a one of uh, a crusade, but one of my tasks to find out why did this happen? Why is it happening here? How did it happen? And what do we do about it? Yes. Before we answer those questions, can we back up and just define what opioids are and what they do for the body? Opioids are a category of compounds of medicines that, um, I mean, the orig originally the name comes from something called the opium poppy. Okay, and, and that goes back about as far as the, we have written history. And it's been was used as a medicine that could treat pain going back, you know, the Greeks, the Assyrians, um, you could harvest it from uh, the, the flower, the opium poppy and, and take the, 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 the milk or juice from that and that would have morphine in it. And that will bind the opioid receptors in your in your brain, and it will deaden the experience of pain um, in a couple of ways. One is it blocks the transmission of pain, but it also makes you feel good, okay? And in by, by doing that and elevating your mood, um, it will reduce your suffering from pain. And so it has this effect of reducing the suffering from pain. Mm -hmm. and, and, but at least temporarily, it doesn't, doesn't continue that way, but it, temporarily. Um, 
And remember, opioids are compounds you make yourself. You know, these are your endorphins, all right? These yes. are natural compounds. Yes. You know, it, unless you made this yourself for some particular reason, your brain wouldn't have a receptor for it, okay? But your brain does. You make this, okay? So those are all opioids. And the more common prescribed opioids that your audience may have heard of would be Percocet, mm -hmm. which has the opioid oxycodone, Vicodin or Norco, and that has the opioid hydrocodone. Mm -hmm. Heroin uh, is diacetylmorphine. And, and for those in the United States who, who may not be aware of this, heroin is used as a medicine in the United Kingdom all the time. Okay, mm -hmm. it, they don't call it heroin. We're going to give this patient with a kidney stone two milligrams of heroin, but they'll give they'll give diamorph, which is diacetylmorphine. So these are all similar compounds that bind the same receptor in the brain, the opioid receptor, and they can affect the short-term experience of pain by mildly blocking the transmission, but also elevating uh, your emotional state, and so your suffering decreases. Yes. So it has a physical relieving element as well as a psychological. Uh, help as well, right? You said that it helps with. Well, I would, I would say everything's physical. Your psych, your your psych, your psychological is is very much physical. So it it affects. Uh, it, it may be dip more difficult to visualize those effects on a CAT scan or anything, but it's all physical. But yes, uh, it affects your your emotional state and it affects this the actual signal strength. Okay, so if you are taking the opioids and you're not producing the opioids naturally anymore, then you can become dependent on them, correct? Well, yeah, what happens over time, like, like most everything else in the body, is that your body wants something called homeostasis. And that for those in the audience who like to have taken biology are, are familiar with that. And, and it's a very common term in medicine, which is the body doesn't want to do this, okay? The body wants steady, okay? Um, so if you bring your mood up with opioids, um, your body starts to push back. It's like, it doesn't want, I mean, it is maybe frustrating as it elation and an emotion that's not stable. Okay. The body wants you to be more like meh. Okay. So in the short term, it can do that, but your body starts to push back very quickly and it stops making its own opioids in, the, in, a, in a similar way that a bodybuilder who takes testosterone, a professional who gets all big and big, his own, his own body um, stops making it um, mm -hmm. because the body is very efficient and says, well, why would I make, why would I make this compound if I'm get, getting it from the environment? So it stops doing it. And the body also says, this is actually kind of too much. And it stops making receptors for it. And it stops responding to the chemical as much. And uh, those in the field of opioids and pain research know that uh, the brain develops what's called opponent processes, which means it very shortly after taking this compound, the brain starts to make counteracting compounds. And so the medicine has a less effect over time. And that's what, when you talk about dependence, that, that's where you can get that problem because once the medicine start, wears off, now you feel actually more pain. Mm -hmm. Yes. And your mood is actually not kind of meh, but it's actually kind of down. It's like you, you don't feel good because mm -hmm. your natural, your natural opioids, which kind of keep your emotional state, you know, hopefully you know, reasonable. I mean, you know, again, you're not giggling all the time, but reasonable, uh, those comp you've, you've depleted that. So now you actually don't go back to kind of your state. You're, you've actually kind of, you're, you're feeling down. And again, that's what happens if you use these compounds over a long period of time or in high doses, your dip after they wear off is low. And that's when you have things, actual withdrawal. Mm -hmm. and, so when they, and that's a state of misery that, that um, can lead to desperate decisions. Yeah. So the, when doctors prescribe these opioids, it's for short term only, right? It's not something that they want people to be on forever. Well, it, it was supposed to be. Um, the problem we, we, we developed in this country in particular was that starting in the late 1990s, some doctors who were um, in the pain business and often paid well cons you know, consultants of the pharmaceutical companies that made opioids said, oh, why don't we, we can use this for long-term use and we use it for back pain, we can use it for headaches, we can use it for our, you know, joint pain. And made the case that these medicines were, you, know, you could keep using them for long-term pain reasons. And uh, they did so without any studies showing that they were effective, but they had this sort of 
consensus statements, um, which which experts will, will you know in the field will make um, sometimes with good evidence to support it, but often but sometimes there isn't good evidence, but that's how they all feel, and and that's what happened in the late 1990s. Now, what they should be using it for is yes, short term, like you have you have a, a broken bone or you have a kidney stone or you have uh, you know an abscess, which is a painful collection of infection, right? You use it for a few days, maybe a week, you know, to or maybe like a, a knee replacement surgery, maybe a couple of weeks, and then you stop. Okay, um, and that's where they have their their primary sort of beneficial effect is get you through that really you know painful initial period, but then okay, you you, you let the, you, you stop taking them. Yes, you're going to have some pain, but as your body heals, that will also go away. The mm -hmm. other place where opioids can be used kind of indefinitely would be end of life care for someone with a terminal condition, yes. advancing cancer, in which case the risk of depending, mean, yes, they may get dependent, but who cares? Right, right. Okay? At that point, you know, you, the, the reason you don't want, you want to prevent dependence is because you don't want them to keep taking it and de maybe develop addiction. And addiction takes away all these things from your life, your ability to work, your ability to look after your family, your relationships, okay? Well, if you have end-stage metastatic cancer, that your disease is doing that already. I mean, you're mm -hmm. not you're not in a position where you need to go, where you can can go to work and make your payments for your kids' college or your more. I'm like, well, anyway. So, end of life care. It's like your the disease process has taken that away already. Just focus on comfort. Then, if you need more, you get more. So, in those so, stages, it's appropriate. So. Just kind of rewind a little bit about the withdrawal that happens with people. Can you just go into that a little bit? Um, what are some of the effects that people feel when they um, try to get off of it after, you know, they've been taking it a while? If they've been taking it a while and try to stop right away, there's very, um, uh, well, depending on how much and how long they've used it, um, a withdrawal syndrome or, or sometimes called being quote unquote dope sick. And, um, you know, the most... Uh, They'll, it has been described as, quote, the worst flu you've ever had, which is you're sweating, your heart is being fast, everything hurts, your back hurts, your legs hurts, you're shaking, you may be vomiting. Um, it it, it it's, can be quite a miserable experience and you are maybe non-functional because of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so some will just, you know, a person who, who, who may have been addicted to say heroin and I using it IV, you know, their first dose of the day isn't, isn't to make them feel awesome. It's to stop that. Okay. Mm -hmm. To sort of get back to almost a normal feeling. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the terrible part where like, when you, now you have to use this to just get kind of back to baseline. Mm -hmm. That is the withdrawal. Those are some of the withdrawal effects when your body has almost no opioid in it. You've, 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 depressed how much opioid you make, you've depressed how many receptors you have now and your response. So now you're way below zero in that sense. And mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're miserable. So as far as treatment, my understanding is that you treat opioids with opioids. Can you get it, go into that a little bit? Right. So what you're trying to do with, um, opioid treatment, uh, therapy with medical assisted therapy. And by that, uh, I mean, methadone, uh, or other medica medications called buprenorphine or suboxone. What about kratom? What, I'm sorry, kratom? Kratom. I'll be honest, I've never heard of treating opioid use disorder with kratom, but, it, okay. but if some are using that, if there's opioid activity in that, I, 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 and I don't claim to be an expert on kratom, I'll be honest. Okay. Um, but the, but the, the idea behind um, opioid therapy for opioid use disorder is that you are trying to replace the short acting intense high with some level of opioid activity that is more gets you closer to baseline at a sort of steady level that reduces the the withdrawal symptoms reduces the cravings so you don't do something rash and desperate mm -hmm. and a person who's going through that terrible withdrawal syndrome yeah they may they may Go, like I need, I need something. I'm out of my pills. They'll go to the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the the black market, illegal market, you know, the extra medical market. Buy something from somebody. Maybe it's laced with fentanyl, and they have no idea. And that's when sort of a, an overdose can happen. So, um, 
or that's very high risk for that. I mean, you can have it, you can have, even on, even on Suboxone and Methadone, you can still have an overdose, but it reduces the risk of that because you're, mm -hmm. you're, you don't want someone in, in terrible withdrawals with terrible cravings, with no recourse. You're trying to get them to an, enough level of opioid that they won't, they won't have that terrible syndrome. And over time, hopefully reduce that, that, those doses of the methadone, the suboxone, as the brain you know, begins the recovery process. Now that can take some time and maybe some will actually never get off that. Mm -hmm. But you'd ho hopefully the idea would be you replace those sort of more, uh, the opioids where you don't, you know, especially like heroin or fentanyl, like you don't know the dose, you don't know what's in it, with something that's uh, very predictable, reduces the cravings, and then over time the brain is allowed to heal and hopefully over time, you can also taper the, the methadone and Suboxone so you don't have to take anything. Okay, very good. Um, so can you maybe touch on the populations that are most at risk for uh, cry, uh, an opioid addiction or overdose? Well, the uh, as I mentioned sort of at the opening, um, uh, this disorder touches, can, can touch anyone, okay? And, you know, like I said, you know, the the typical or the um, historical at-risk populations would be those uh, often in a, in a place of sort of emotional distress and vulnerable. Um, and that when you look historically at where the substance use issues have been kind of like, you know, the inner city, the, the you know, with lots of unemployment, with lots, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of a hopeless situation where they're, they're, people are feeling bad most of the time, okay? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, 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 this the opioid crisis began in this country, more kind of in the Appalachia areas where mm. small towns, Poverty. not a lot of employment, um, boredom, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, and sort of a, um, not, I mean, not hopelessness, but kind of a sense of lack of purpose. And so you're, yeah. you're missing that sense of connection. You're missing that sense of purpose. And if that's sort of every day in and day out, you are vulnerable mm -hmm. to what intoxicants can do, which is mm -hmm. at least for a short time, mm -hmm. make you feel better. Okay. Yeah. And again, inner city populations have been typically the ones that have been, have the problems with more substance uh, abuse. However, what I would say is, again, when I went to that suburban hospital in 2003 and over the next couple of years realized, man, it's everywhere here. Yeah. Okay? Um, what we also know is that just being exposed to opioids for even as short as two months, you can develop a dependence and addiction. There was a um, you know, very compelling story in 2000 or story uh, study in 2016 from the Kaiser Foundation Washington Post study that showed um, uh, in a survey of a bunch of uh, people who are taking opioids as little as two months. Mm -hmm. Okay, about a third. Mm -hmm. of people taking opioids for as little as two months reported being dependent or addicted. Wow. So, so that's why even if you say are um, a business person or a professional in an in a otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, a very uh, fairly stable environment and, mm -hmm. and one that's not surrounded with other toxic, you know, people and, and crime or whatever, even as little as two months, you can find yourself uh, dependent or addicted. And now, now that's trouble. Okay, yeah. So that's why you see the stories like, oh, this person had everything going for them. They were high powered attorney and then they injured their knee running, got a surgery. Ne next thing you know, or, you know, a year later, mm -hmm. they're in a hotel. Um, mm -hmm. Their family won't talk to them. And, and it's, it's just a terrible story. So while there are vulnerable populations that come from, again, uh, uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, everyone is vulnerable. Everyone yes. is vulnerable. Yes. I found an interesting statistic by the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. They said that prescription medications are now the most commonly abused drug among youth, 12 to 13 year olds. Does that surprise you? Um, that's pretty young. I guess I hadn't, I hadn't seen that study and I, 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 I guess I, I can't see how they got the, that conclusion. What we, what we do know is that um, prescription drugs are the most common way that people get introduced to opioids, period. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, someone is recovering from a, a knee replacement or someone had a broken bone and a cast and they're, they're looking for pain relief. Their first answer is not, you know, I think heroin's the answer. Um, I'll start making some calls. Um, <laughs> what the, the, they, they, they won't make that psychological leap to like, you know, that, that marketplace. Okay. Yes. But what they, what they can do is like, well, it's a pill. 
It's made by a pharmaceutical company. It's a doctor who wrote for it or some other provider wrote for it. Can't be that dangerous. Mm -hmm. So they'll make that leap. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we know that three out of four, we're actually 75 to 80% of people who eventually go on to develop a problem with opioids, develop opioid use disorder, they began with prescriptions. Mm -hmm. um, so it began sort of treat, taking it for probably some, you know, for some painful cause and the, the prescription kept going mm -hmm. and they kept using it longer than, than they probably should have. And mm -hmm. that's how the problem of dependence, which then can lead to addiction develops. So they can make the psychological leap to a prescription, it's medicine, it must be safe. And then over time, like, well, I mean, I guess these other compounds, heroin, it's about basically the same. I can get more of that for less money. Mm -hmm. And that's when they turn to, to those kind of substances. Yeah. But especially for someone 12, 13, they're gonna find it in their, the house medicine cabinet. It'll probably, it won't be, yeah. it won't be theirs. Um, mm -hmm. Right. They're not getting prescribed it usually. It's they're going into their uncle's medicine cabinet or something. Yeah, their grandma's medicine cabinet. And, um, you know, they're not going to, uh, the doctor will not probably write for that for, 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 I mean, it's a little young to get your wisdom teeth out. Later teenage, or like the, we do know that a lot of people get introduced to opioids when they have their wisdom teeth out. So there's, mm -hmm. there's more of them these days, like, hey, let's do just a couple days right afterwards. And then, mm -hmm. And that's you know, it. Don't, don't, don't keep going with that. Yeah. Um, but uh, overall the, the, the idea that prescriptions are the sort of the kind of gateway uh, is not surprising at all. Okay. Um, so let's look at this interesting statistic. Uh, more people died of overdoses in the United States last year than in any other one year period in our history. Um, so according to the provisional drug overdose death, uh, death statistic, for 2020, more than 93,000 people died of an overdose. That's up 30% from previous years. So what do you think of that statistic and maybe some of the contributing factors, why 2020 was such an issue? Well, uh, kind of what we talked about already. We, we, we talked about populations that are vulnerable. Um, the pandemic from COVID made everyone more vulnerable. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think of those 90 something thousand, 70,000 were opioids. Um, you know, because opioids, uh, uh, and for those in the, who, who, in the audience who don't know, the, the reason opioids are particularly dangerous is it affects your breathing. Okay. One of the things opioids do besides controlling your mood and controlling some pain transmission is that they affect uh, your rate of breathing. And so those who die of an opioid overdose have so much opioid that it bind the breathing centers in your, in your brain and slowed your breathing that it couldn't get enough oxygen. And then you, you pass out, become unconscious. And in a few minutes without proper oxygen, your brain dies. And, and that's how people usually meet their end with opioids. Mm -hmm. um, that's not how they meet their end with, with this, uh, that, you know, Cocaine and others more stimulant, you know, can, can cause death in other ways. But the reason why it's 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 much more dangerous with opioids is it affects how you breathe, and that death can happen within minutes, like that. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm not surprised to hear that 2020 uh, was the worst year ever because when we think about what makes someone vulnerable to the lure of intoxicants, all of that became worse in the pandemic. People were mm -hmm. isolated; they didn't have normal human social interaction, and you know, human social interaction is rewarded in your brain. You you have a positive interaction with family, friends, you get a little hit of dopamine, you get a little hit of opioid. Okay. That make that you are rewarded for that. Okay. Yeah. Now you can only do it. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, virtual interactions are okay. It's not like being with, it's not like being in the present. We, we evolved right. to be in the presence of others. That is how, that is how the, this species evolved. Yes. And we're deprived of that. We feel that lack of connection. We don't have our normal opioid system, you know, working. We uh, plus in the pandemic, people face lots of other challenges. They mm -hmm. might have found that their job was threatened. Might have found that their the, which threatens their their you know are they going to be able to eat? Are they going to be able to stay in their place? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so they were facing shelter insecurity, food insecurity. Their own, they, they feared for their own health. They yeah, this is a very might have got COVID <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, we also have seen that like the sales of alcohol went way up um, with COVID. So all those factors that make a human vulnerable to, to those, to, yeah. to the, the allure of that became worse. Um, added to which 
with the uh, uh, you know with with COVID and the restriction on, on the new restrictions on how one goes about getting healthcare, there was a, uh, a decreased access to addiction treatment. Um, yep. I think the primary problem was all the things that make people vulnerable got much worse with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, and all predicted, right? Like you could see that coming when it started happening with the lockdowns and restrictions, and you know putting people in unfortunate situations. Right. On situations, and then well, then the uh, the added trauma of um, uh, our uh, a fair bit of of, of our political leaders not acting to put people not acting to make people safe. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. so then not only do you have the crisis, but you have what looked to be abandonment by those who might be able to help you. Mm. Um, and so those who in the mental health uh, who who are you know focused on the mental health industry, the psychologists, the psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. Talk of uh, the next pandemic is a mental health one. Mm -hmm. That the effects of COVID have have caused these you know very harmful, almost PTSD type of effects. Yep. yep. Um, and so you've got a pan you've got a pandemic of COVID and COVID death, mm -hmm. and now you've got you've got another pandemic of the mental health consequences of that. Yes. So let's just kind of rewind a little bit. How did we get here? How did we get to 70,000 deaths in one year? So you had mentioned this kind of all started back in around the 90s, 95. Can you give us a little bit of a history and how we got here? Okay. okay. Well, um, if you look back at like, like when did that, we weren't talking about this in 1992 and I'm, I'm old enough to remember 1992. Two. Me too. <laughs> um, uh, I wasn't. I wasn't a physician then. And actually, I wasn't a. Actually, was just you know. I had graduated from college and hadn't you know. Was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. Um, but in the early '90s and going back into the '80s and and '70s, you you did have people becoming addicted to opioid pain relievers. Uh, these medications had been around for decades. Okay, this is these were not new inventions, and. In those times, it was fairly steady year to year. You had about 4,000 Americans dying of prescription opioid overdose and another 2,000 dying of heroin. And that had been fairly constant. That had been so about 6,000 Americans with a plus minus year in, year out, were having, still having issues with opioid uh, um, use disorder, dependence, addiction, and overdose death. What changed is that. In the mid 1990s, 95, 96, the the opioid manufacturing industry had um, started their campaign that chronic pain, back pain, headaches, knee pain, other sort of chronic pain conditions could be safely treated with opioids, and that we were, you know, our 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 reluctance to use them was misguided, and we should be using them much more liberally than we ever had before. Hmm. Um, up until you know, the 70s, the 80s, early 90s, again, opioids were by, by and large restricted to short-term use for acute injuries, you know, you, know, you know, sudden injuries, and then for end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. And it was, a, it was in the mid-90s with the introduction of OxyContin by Purdue Pharma that the campaign that pain is the fifth vital sign that opioids are safe. They had gotten a bad rap. You can use them. That started to gain mm. traction in the in the medical community, um, and it was traction not based on actually good evidence. It was traction based on the advocacy of some leading experts in the industry, experts often who are in the paid employ of the pharmaceutical companies themselves, and made handsome amounts of money leading this charge. Uh, sadly, that I mean that was not. Um, it was not backed by any good studies that showed they were safe, but rather they would publish articles showing case studies, which is a case study is, you know, I saw these patients, they had these characteristics, they took opioids and they were safe. Okay. In meta, that, that's not very helpful in terms of like deciding to, for a new treatment. Okay. Yes, that's interesting. You had these patients, maybe from this background with this condition, they could take opioids and they never seem to develop addiction. Okay. All right. Well, you can find any number of people who smoke cigarettes. Look, they smoke cigarettes for 20 years and they never got lung cancer, okay? You can find plenty of that. So when you have what these quote case studies or case examples, that's an, what's called an observational study. And an observational study is useful, but it, it suggests you should do the follow-up study and do a large number of people and follow them over time to see if this works and you wanna do it in a controlled blinded way. 
which means neither the, the subject of the study or the experimenter knows who's getting what treatment. And that's a proper scientific study. That was never done. So what you had was these experts who are, who are paid advocates of the pharmaceutical industry arguing for broad use of opioids without any studies. And just over time, that became standard of care because they're, well, like in many fields of study, you, 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 you kind of defer to the experts. You're sort of quote unquote teaching fa faculty, students and professionals like myself, you know, you can't go and, you know, you have to have some level of trust. You can't go through medical school and say, I don't believe this study. I got to go do it myself. Uh, I have to, you know, repeat every study in biochemistry, physiology, cardio. I, I, you, you can't do that. So in a sense, you do have this filter that, okay, the people at the top of the industry, the leading academic institutions are acting in good, good faith. They wouldn't report this unless they had good reason to, okay? But they didn't. And they made they made statements about how very few people became addicted, the less than 1% become addicted that I mentioned in my TED talk, um, which was not based on science. And so starting in the mid 1990s with OxyContin, this pain is the fifth vital sign, pain, you know, chronic pain is an undertreated epidemic. These medicines are safe, you can use them indefinitely, became the culture of prescribing in medicine. And what happened starting the mid 1990s to the early 2000 or to the mid 2000s to 2010, prescriptions tripled or close to even quadrupled. Wow. And it wasn't just the number of prescriptions, but the number, the amount of opioid in each prescription increased as well. So you had this dramatic, maybe eightfold or even tenfold increase in exposure of the United States population to opioids. And as we saw in the, in the Kaiser study, it only takes a couple months before a great many find themselves dependent. So mm -hmm. if you're gonna treat chronic pain, well, it's going to go more than two months. Mm -hmm. So you created this entire population of people who found themselves a year into it. Like they, they couldn't stop. So and that's what, that's what, that's what changed is the, is the, the agenda of the pharmaceutical industry and their, I guess, business savvy, um, mm -hmm. kind of medical negligence in the, in the, on the part of the physicians who signed up and, um, made those statements and they should know better. Okay. I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have much patience for any physician who says, well, if we had only known now we'd known then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. But you knew what kind of study needed to be done to show it was safe. Mm. That's basic biology. That's basic. Any medical student will get, will get taught population health and biostatistics. Mm -hmm. So yes, you may not have known opioids over this long at that time, but you certainly knew what kind of study it took to prove your point and you mm -hmm. never did it. Yes. So that's my that's my main criticism with the medical industry is like, yeah, but we have mechanisms, we have mechanisms in place that you don't just like, well, let's try this on the patients and see yeah. what happens. Yeah. You know what you need to do first. So profits became like the leading driver of all of this with yes. them. And, yes. And and the medical industry in the United States is over three trillion dollars um, in revenue. I think it's like the medical the US mm -hmm. medical industry is like the fifth largest economy in the world. So yes, when you have three trillion, three and a half trillion dollars moving in, in this, yeah, science yeah. can get science can be corrupted by by finance um, uh, when yes. you have that kind of dollar value. So that's interesting. The let's talk a little bit about that pain threshold that people have. Um, I had an accident a couple of years ago. I was in the hospital, and I had a really good nurse that made sure I felt no pain. I mean, the whole time I was in the hospital, she would always ask me what your pain at and. I never felt pain in the hospital, but as soon as I left the hospital, there wasn't much education. They gave me the pain meds. Um, I did take them for a few days, but I didn't want to take them much longer because one of the side effects was constipation. And I was like, I don't want that. And, um, but it was an interesting thing to kind of go through the system of how um, liberal they are with giving you the pain medication and not having much education behind it. Well, one of the other, um... Uh, what a part of this campaign about pain is a fifth vital sign, chronic you know, pain is uh, an undertreated epidemic was there was this movement that any pain a patient felt was almost tantamount to negligence or medical malpractice, mm -hmm. okay? And part of the campaign became like, you know, that's when the sort of the, the zero to 10 scale started appearing in every hospital room and every room in the emergency department was, what is your pain level at? And you're, you were required 
okay, uh, to, to ask the patient what their pain level is. And, and hospitals were graded, okay? They, hospitals have what's called an accreditation process by something called the Joint Commission, okay, or JACO, or at least it used to be called JACO. Maybe it's just the Joint Commission now. And one of the categories that a hospital would receive its accreditation, um, which has a significant dollar uh, value attached to it, is pain scores. And so hospitals are graded on the scores pain uh, the patients give them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the closer to zero they get, the higher their, their rating, uh, the more revenue that meant for the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so the, their incentive to get your pain down to next to nothing while you were there would affect how you, you if you were one of the people who got a, like a, a satisfaction survey afterwards, you would give them high marks for that. Yeah. And that's what their incentive was. It ne- wasn't necessarily for your long-term health. Mm-hmm. They want a nice, you know, customer review is what they want. I mean, it's a customer mm-hmm. review. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. The better the customer review you get, um, you actually, that actually does translate into higher levels of reimbursement. In fact, that's in the, uh, that's in the ACA, um, that, that Medicare reimbursement is tied to your performance on these satisfaction surveys. And while you don't want, I mean, you don't want people to be unhappy. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to compromise, you know, care and go against the best science in order to achieve that. Yeah, okay? that's, that's it is not the patient's job to know what the last 20 years of research in this has been. How is my treatment uh, aligned with that? They just they, this is just how they felt about that. They're, so you, you when you when you make actual medical care decisions based on, well, how are they going to emotionally respond? You get into trouble. Um, and that's the big that was a big problem in the end. I don't know if they still have that as the driving force, but that is a, uh, one of the patient satisfaction questions is about pain. And so that's why they were like very aggressive. And once you were out of there, you sort of like, you're on your own. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're focused on you getting, reviewing them for that visit. Yeah. Um, Which is real interesting. It's a good thing you stopped after a few days. Like we yeah. said, don't. Well, well, pain is such a subjective uh, thing to think about. Cause what I might see is, you know, a three on a, you know, one to 10 scale, you might say is a seven. You know, and so it's very subjective on how people deal with the pain. Right. And pain, pain is a uh, subjective pain is very emotional. Um, mm. I mean, all of life is emotional. Okay? Emotions, yeah. emotions are far more than a, a detached cost benefit analysis of should I go to the grocery store today or do I need to do this today? You sort of like, I feel this. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I will go do this, you know, go to the store. I will buy this. I will you know, to go see a friend or something. It, it's, it's like your emotions are one of the, are the primary mm-hmm. driving force of what, of why you do anything, mm-hmm. why anyone does anything. Right. And so pain is part of that. And pain is a very emotional one. And we could, we have seen why someone whose life is a lot of distress, um, their emotional state needs elevating a lot of the time for many people. Like, you know, every day is one long emergency, mm. you know, uh, what increases the risk for chronic pain is say someone who may not have a job mm-hmm. or maybe they've got two jobs and they've got no childcare mm-hmm. um, and they've got no benefits. So they're, they're on the, they're on the, you know, they're struggling. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're, they're kind of financial in financial straits. They maybe struggle with anxiety, depression. Uh, the number of people who have been prescribed opioids for, you know, who have a co-diagnosis of anxiety and depression is extremely high. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's one of the great, because it does have this mood elevating effect. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just the pain that sort of mm-hmm. gets relieved, but it's their emotional state from minute to minute. Okay. Yes. That, that doesn't last, but, but that's why it, it, it has this effect. And that's why uh, factors that increase chronic pain would be again, and perhaps, uh, uh, you know, employment problems, childcare mm-hmm. problems as you know, you have a, you know, your place to say is, 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 you know, kind of tenuous and maybe mm-hmm. it's unsafe. Mm-hmm. All of those factors that increase stress increase your experience of pain. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so in 1995, seems like we went an extreme route by overprescribing. Now we're in 2021. Has it gone the other way, or are we balanced out with regards to prescribing practices of opioids? We've come down a bit, but I mean, we've come down by about you know 25 to 30 percent since around 2012. I think 2012 to 2014, we had sort of hit the peak uh, amount of prescribing of opioid pain relievers. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've come down about 25 to 30% since then, but we have not gotten down to 1990. You know, we've still got a, we got a ways to go before we come down. We have to go back 
we'd have to cut back around to 75 to 80% um, uh, uh, more of what we have now to get down to those levels. Okay. Right, right. But the yeah, problem is, right, the problem now is that in that time period where you we dramatically increased the prescribing, we created this whole population now that developed dependence, okay? And that is why you're seeing, you know, as, as the prescribing, you know, comes down gradually, those patients who are, who've developed the dependence may be turning to sources outside of the regular medical marketplace um, for their opioids, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why you're seeing so spikes in use in, in heroin, spikes in fentanyl, um, mm -hmm. because those are compounds that, uh, again, you, you developed uh, addiction, you developed dependence or addiction with years of taking the prescribed opioids, they're trying to get you off them, but you're not, and you might, and some, some doctors may unethically totally cut someone off, um, which is not ethical, it's not safe. Mm -hmm. A person like that might tr might then turn to that marketplace. Okay, so they became right. dependent or addicted on prescribed opioids, and then they transition to mm -hmm. heroin. They transition to pills bought outside, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, the pharmacy. Which again, you, they don't know how much. You, you never know how much is in it. You don't know what else is in it, and that's right. why you have the spikes in the fentanyl. Right, right. So as far as um, people with chronic pain, how are you handling that situation with their opioid? you know, prescription plan. Right. Well, it, it should be remembered that pa some patients with chronic pain are not on chronic opioids. Okay. So you have the, you have the chronic pain patients who have so far avoided opioids. And for them, we know that uh, uh, the treatments that are most effective are the, the ones that the patient can maintain agency and are sort of proactive in the, tr in their treatment, um, which is to say, you know, they feel control over their pain and they're doing things like exercise. They're doing, you know, for, you know we don't also know that weight loss. If someone is, is significantly overweight, that's added um, uh, pressure on, on the structures in the back. So weight loss, exercise, also uh, mindfulness when they sort of practice a sort of centering uh, type of technique and yoga and meditation to affect their emotional state when they respond, not that the pain is there, but how they respond to it, mm. they develop some control over. And those patients who are doing that for their chronic pain, um, you know, they, they live. Okay. Uh, you know, remember chronic pain still been around. It's like we, we just live with it without opioids. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? We had so other it, preventative, right, there's other, there's other preventative tools like you correct. just mentioned. Yeah. And, and I, I, one of the uh, one of the other criticisms I have of the entire medical industry is <clears throat> we've sort of promulgated, you know, and you see the commercials on on television for these drugs that'll help you sleep, that'll help make you uh, sexually active as an eighteen year old. That you know it, it would be that health is absence of any symptoms. That's not health. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe you've got no symptoms, but it's, it's, you have that those windows in life where maybe you you don't you have no symptoms of anything. Maybe okay, health isn't that. Health is you're able to live and function and 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 work if you're working and you know nurture your relationships. You can do all that with symptoms. Mm -hmm. That is health. Okay, I don't know many people who are totally symptom free. Mm -hmm. um, now, what do we do with the people who have chronic pain who are on their opioids? Well. If possible, it would be best because we do know that opioids are a risk factor for overdose if we could get them off, okay? And so for those who patients who are willing and are in a position to do it, a taper is recommended. And a taper can be very gradual. And, and you any, any ethical provider would talk to their patient about like, okay, here's what we wanna do. Try to get the patient engaged and get them to do a taper. And they might even be only like 10% per week, maybe 10% per month, but continue that taper so they get the levels their opioids are taking um, down to safer levels, or in some cases even stop. And the patients who actually get off them altogether report they feel better, mm -hmm. um, their life is better now. Mm -hmm. For some, we you, you might be able to taper partially, but then, then going below a certain level is, is sort of you know, challenging and you just might keep them there at a stable opioid dose. Mm -hmm you know, and, and just never go back up again. Like, yep, we're going to, this is the level you're going to be at. I guess we're going to stay mm -hmm. here. And for some, the best you can, you might be able to achieve is stop the process of dose escalation that they just say their pain is worse. Okay. We're going to add 10 more milligrams. Mm -hmm. And then they say, well, I injured my back. 
uh, moving some furniture. I got into a minor car accident. Now my pain is worse. And then the dose goes up and then just stays up. And that's what happens over time is painful things will happen to people all the time. And then that right. what, they'll go the, and then, and then, okay, well now I guess the new dose is this. And then another, something else will happen. And then, well, the dose now goes up again. And so that over time, the dose keeps escalating. Well, what hopefully for we can at least stop that process. Now, maybe you get a couple of days for an accident, a minor one, but like you're going back to that level dose. You're not mm -hmm. going up and up. Mm -hmm. And then there's some evidence that those who have, uh, who are on chronic opioids for chronic pain, that even the addiction treatment drugs of methadone and Suboxone, you might be able to use those. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so even though they haven't developed sort of the, um, you know, what characterizes addiction is not just that they need the opioid, it's that they'll have, the, the, what characterizes addiction is also the behavior. Like they'll, they keep going, you know, using the opioids even after they have an overdose or after they mm -hmm. get in a car accident or even after they, you know, using opioids, they lost their job. It has this behavioral component that they're, they're yeah. acting, unsafe things are happening. They're acting in, you know, against their best interest and they're using anyway. So addiction has that. Well, chronic opioid use for chronic pain, well, they don't have that part, but they're using opioids all the time and trying to stop, create some withdrawal, mm -hmm. okay? There is some evidence that using the, the addiction medicines of methadone, Suboxone might help those patients too. Mm -hmm. So, and I would put that under the same categories. If you get them, get a person who's on chronic opioids, at least to a stable dose where they don't have to keep going up mm -hmm. and up and up. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned earlier that, you know, some populations will turn to like street drugs if they can't, you know, have healthcare access or afford prescription or for whatever reason, they might turn to a street drug like heroin that might be laced with fentanyl. And then, or other things that um, people die of an overdose in that situation. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Right. So the, well, in general, okay. Even, even someone who does have access to treatment and is taking Suboxone, we have studies showing that even half of those patients will continue taking non-prescribed opioids. Okay. So Suboxone and Methadone are are valuable, but they are imperfect treatments, okay? It's not like a diabetic who is no longer making insulin and now gets insulin through a medication and basically can lead a life of normal, normal life expectancy or otherwise close to it because mm -hmm. that needed chemical, that needed uh, a protein has been supplied, okay? Mm -hmm. By the medical assisted treatment helps, helps take away some of the worst effects of opioid withdrawal to keep someone from overdosing. But, you know, once you develop opioid use disorder, your life is shortened. Okay. Mm. Not just from overdose, but all the things that go with opioid use disorder. And that also includes things like heart disease. That includes things like trauma. That includes things like infection and hepatitis and all. If you get into the, 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 the realm of a use disorder, it isn't just the substance that affects mm -hmm. your health. It's all the stuff that goes around with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we know from uh, studies in, a, uh, in addiction medicine that someone with opioid use disorder, who's even being treated, the risk of death is every year is like somewhere between one and a half to 2%. Okay. Now that doesn't sound very high, mm -hmm. but if you look at the life insurance tables, that's a 65 year old. So even being treated, you, you are not, it is not like you got cured. It is mm -hmm. not like your risk is now back to what it was before. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what I would say about methadone, suboxone and these treatments is yes, that it's better than unmanaged, unstable use disorder, but it is no substitute for like never getting in there in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so that's why my focus at the department of human services here in Minnesota. And what I would hope elsewhere too, is we need to focus our efforts on or the most of one of the one of the focuses needs to be preventing someone from progressing to that in the first place which means again being very careful if someone has a surgery if someone has a fracture like yes we're going to take care of your pain in the short term but we, we're just not continuing with these medications mm -hmm. and we're actually going to in here in this state we're actually following doctors prescribing so like you know if some if a doctor is showing that they keep putting patients on new doses of opioids that's very high they're going to, they're going to have to answer to, you know, the department of health. Um, yeah. so what I would, again, so what I would say about the, the, those treatments is they are useful. They are better than not being treated, but no one should feel 
It's not, it's not the cure that taking an antibiotic for a bladder infection or taking insulin for a diabetic is. You yeah. still can develop the, the, the sort of the change in your brain pathways and physiology mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. years that those mm-hmm. treatments help sort of control the worst aspects of, Yeah, it doesn't cure it. It reminds me of, you know, the term people throw around functional addicts, like he's a functional alcoholic, but he still shows up at work. He pays his taxes. He shows up and takes care of his kids and he's a functional or a functional opioid addict. And that might be true, but the body always keeps score. Correct. And, and, um, and well, we're all trying to be functional, you know, we, maybe we all have our, our, we all have our, uh, uh, Definition maybe, of function. maybe unhealthy <laughs> indulgences that sort of that keep keep us together for, <laughs> from day to day, but um, yeah, we, we we you know and, and while function is important, it is it is no um, uh, be, because they're functional until they're not. Okay, yeah. and, and so that's that's the issue. Like saying someone is functional is like you know they, they're a smoker without cancer until they're a smoker now with. Okay, so yeah. so yeah. What we know is that with with a person who who is taking high doses of opioids per day, their risk of overdose and the risk of de- dependence and addiction goes up over time. So it's a very important thing to understand that exposure to a risk factor itself needs to be mm-hmm. uh, controlled and 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 treated, even if you haven't developed the condition yet. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and the same way we talk about tobacco smoke and and um, and cancer, that's why we want to stop smoking before we get to that. Right, right. Are you familiar with Dr. Um, Carl Hart? He's a neuroscientist at Columbia University. I can't say that I am. Maybe you could uh, educate me here. So he um, is an interesting fellow. He wrote a book, uh, Drug Use for Grownups. And uh, he's researched um, drugs for like 30 years, written 100 scientific papers. And uh, he's really big on decriminalizing drugs. And um, kind of having a libertarian stance when it comes to drug use that people, you know, are grownups and should be able to use drugs, including heroin. And um, he thinks that, for example, like in the United States, we need to have clinics where people like drug users can come and test their drugs and make sure that the heroin is pure. Like in other countries, they have that available, but in the United States, we don't. Um, is that something, if you're looking at future policy making, is that something that you would get behind or do you think that's a bad idea? What I, what I would certainly say is that um, treating the, the, the drug problem as a public health issue and less of a criminal justice issue is very much needed, okay? Um, and we have other you know, experiments on a national level, for example, Portugal, about a decade ago, right. decriminalized drugs for personal use. So did Oregon, the state of Oregon. And if you want to compare country to country, like Por- Portugal has fewer overdoses per, on a per capita basis. They have, have fewer treatment admissions per capita. I mean, the United States has the highest rate of drug overdose in the world, okay? And we have some of the strictest drug laws, okay? So you can't rationally look at, yeah, just prescribe it in a law and say it, you're gonna go to jail and make a criminal offense out of it and think like the population is gonna be, okay, well, I guess we just won't do that, okay? That's kind of a, that's a very simplistic, even juvenile way of looking at this problem, okay? Um, you should treat drugs as, as, as a public health issue that you want someone to, you, and remember decriminalizing doesn't mean we're saying, oh, it's okay. Right. And okay. he doesn't, he doesn't say that either. He's just saying, and, and we're, and we're not going to do it. We're, yeah. And we're not saying it's unhealthy. Okay. But in, in, in many respects, you know, like, well, we'll take a more easier example, like say marijuana, for example. Okay. There is no scientific reason that marijuana is illegal and tobacco and alcohol are. Right. You know, you, they talk about the dangers to kids who smoke marijuana and it, it, cha- it challenges their, their ability to develop. Um, and, and, and that is all true, okay? That's true of tobacco. That's true of alcohol. In fact, alcohol is actually quite a bit more dangerous than marijuana. I mean, mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware, no one has ever died of respiratory failure from marijuana. About 2,000 Americans every year die of respiratory failure from acute alcohol poisoning. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't even account for all the deaths that, com- that, that correspond to, say, traffic fatalities where alcohol was a significant contributor or, um, you know, the, the toxic effects of alcohol on, say, someone's liver. Um, so we're not saying that any of these substances are healthy, um, but to add that level of criminality to it is often not helpful. 
Right. Um, I guess I can't, I guess I don't know all the studies about saying, you know, having a safe, uh, uh, safe, safe injection site, but um, you know, you should make policy and make laws in terms of like the social cost. Okay. I, and, and also understand like a, a healthy person, I mean, if you want to go do meth, you're, you can go do it. Okay. It's just that a healthy person doesn't get off work and say, well, it's a tough day at work. You know, what would take the edge off meth. Okay. That that's not what a healthy person does. Okay. Right. So understand that if you made meth legal tomorrow, you're not I, people who feel like everyone's going to go, no, right. That, that's not what they're, that's not what a healthy person is going to go do. Okay. And mm -hmm. You know, like I said, you had this massive increase in, in overdoses mm -hmm. during the pandemic. It's like understand what drives someone to to use or not use isn't yeah. whether they see a law. It's it's what are they feeling and what are their what are their right. stresses? What are their vulnerabilities? Right. So I would, of, I definitely a, a favor a public health and science approach to 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 the drug laws and understanding that make you know just saying something is forbidden is not a great way to um, right. control human behavior. Right. You have to meet people where they're at. And if people are already using it, they're not going to change overnight. And right. I think so, and then you can use that. Right. And you can use maybe a program like that as an outreach. Do you want to stop? I mean, a great man. Some say they don't. Others would say, like, I do want help. I mean, this sucks. OK. Mm -hmm. You know, for a person who's in the midst of all that, like every day is like that's all they do. Right. Where, where do I get another prescription? Where do, right. where am I find this, this next dose? I don't want to go through terrible withdrawals and feel miserable. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a sucky place to be. Right. Right. And so, so you're going to, you're going to reach out, be able to talk to them like, well, let's, let's try and help. Here's what we can do. So use that. Yeah. So if you were a policymaker, what and you had a wand and you could change uh, things in our laws or in our healthcare system uh, to combat this, what would you like to see done? Well, what I would like to see done, um, well, there are a couple things. One of the one of the other, with with my particular field is which is medicine. Um, not only do we have the historical example of prescribing opioids for these chronic pain conditions and and not having proper scientific evidence, is I would want to see my profession become more scientific. And one of the re ways you make it more scientific is you you start severing these relationships with industry. Doctors are humans, even scientists are humans, and their, sure. their conclusions can, and can be very much clouded by what's in their financial best interest. So let's take away some of that incentive of their own financial best interest. Um, we had a very compelling study um, in, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that showed when they looked county by county where there were, where there were more pharmaceutical company gifts to doctors, there are more opioid prescriptions and more overdose deaths. Mm-hmm. So let's create something of a firewall between pharmaceutical industry and physicians. And doctors are also like humans. They're not good at being able to recognize when their behavior is being affected. So, mm -hmm. you know, they'll, they'll say like, oh, I took the money, but nah, it doesn't change anything about how I, how I practice medicine. Well, no, the studies repeatedly show that it does. Okay. So we need to create a safer, more scientific medicine that doesn't have this financial incentive. So I would create barriers there. Um, and hopefully what that would do is decrease the rate of new chronic users. And by that, I mean, understand how quickly someone can become dependent and, and stop the prescription for opioids after a new injury, you know, wide right away. The other thing you have to do, wait a wave a wand, if I could, is make treatment available on a wide, you know, make it much more inexpensive and accessible for everyone who, mm -hmm. who, who needs it. Okay. Still only a smaller, you know, a much low, much less percentage than those who need it get access to uh, medical treatment for addiction. And we need to make that, again, I've, I've said that Suboxone and Methadone are not cure-alls, okay? It's still, it's a very imperfect solution, right? but it's better than unmanaged opioid use disorder. We need to make that more accessible. Mm -hmm. And honestly, to that end, it's like, yeah, we, I, I don't think, I don't see how a private revenue-driven industry can do that on its own. We need to have some level of intervention, um, uh, some level of intervention, either on a national level to, to, to control the cost of healthcare. So we don't have these people who are priced out of it and don't have access to care. Mm -hmm. And I would change, and I would actually would follow up examples of other countries and you could sort of start decriminalizing at least for personal use and use it as an outreach for mm -hmm. those who are, are struggling mm -hmm. um, to make sure that, that they're, they're not using tainted uh, uh, chemicals. Okay. To mm -hmm. make, make sure they have, they maybe understand their dosing better and, mm -hmm 
use that as a time to like, do you want to get out of this? Do you want help with this? Yes. Okay? Again, we look at other countries that have taken such measures, at least, you know, not, I mean, they haven't decriminalized trafficking. Okay. Portugal did not, <clears throat> they haven't set up shops where, or, I mean, they said for personal use, they've decriminalized it. So, um, so I wouldn't decriminalize trafficking at those, but for personal use, uh, for sure. Um, and honestly, maybe, maybe it's a little controversial, but I would, I would, yes, I think, uh, Mar the fact that marijuana is illegal is, 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 you know, doesn't, is completely incongruous with making mm -hmm. alcohol and tobacco legal. So if you're going to make those substances legal, you should make marijuana legal for sure. Is there any culpability or lawsuits needed? For? The, the deaths, yeah. the opioid addictions and crises? I definitely think um, accountability is needed. Unfortunately, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's going to happen. Um, <laughs> What's done is done. Yeah, what's done is done. The uh, as the recent bankruptcy filing for uh, Purdue Pharma uh, that just happened in the state of New York, um, uh, there will be you know the 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 Sackler family had their billions protected. The the bankruptcy court did file a judgment. They are going to pay some level of billion dollars over the next eighteen years, which is a pittance compared to what they were bringing in for the last twenty five. Every you know, yeah. When, you, when your drug makes two billion a year times 20 years and you pay like, no, that's it, paying a fine for doing something unsafe is not just the cost of doing business in, in the industry. I, I, I would like to see executives go to jail. I mean, fines for big companies, okay, we wrote a fine. It doesn't make the population safer. You mm -hmm. know, if you're really going to disincentivize companies from acting this way, you need to hold the executives accountable, take their freedom away. That'll make them think real hard that their money can't mm -hmm. insulate them from real consequence. Mm -hmm. um, I would also hold the doctors accountable, especially the ones who promulgated this treatment and there was no evidence um, supporting it. And they wouldn't, they would know better. I, they don't get the excuse of, oh, like, I, I, you know, who knew that was going to happen? Yeah. Well, maybe you didn't know everything that was going to happen, but you knew what it, you knew what real scientific evidence was going to look like that said what the you're rest. doing is safe. And I would have, definitely have clawback features for the kind of money they took from the pharmaceutical industry. And I would actually hold some of them perhaps criminally accountable or certainly malpractice accountable for patients who had overdose deaths under their care. Very good. Um, so we're kind of coming to the end of our talk. Do you have any like last minute uh, thoughts or ideas that you'd like to share on this, uh, this topic? Well, I guess one of the things I would want to, um, uh, uh, you know, first of all, uh, thank you for inviting me again. Thank you. For uh, I, I'm always, on. I've, uh, I didn't set out in my career to become an advocate. Um, I, I mean, basically just wanted to, um, just wanted to do my career and, and I sort of fell into this. Like I, I sort of, I, I saw this problem that was causing all this suffering and I like, I felt I had to do something. Like I, like mm -hmm. I, I thought that was part of my job as a physician is like, well, you can't just ignore this, you mm -hmm. know, and just do your job and go on vacation and, and do all the professional stuff that people like doing. Not that there's yeah. per se anything wrong with, with doing those things. I sort of fell into this and so did so many people who became dependent or addicted, okay? And I, I want to em emphasize, this is about physiology. This is not a moral issue. And those right. who say like, you just made bad choices. Well, all these things, whether you were exposed to opioids or you're exposed to these crises in your life, that affects your ability to make good choices. You don't just get to start where everything is sort of level and you get to make this choice or not make this choice. The, the body reacts to things that affects how how much your executive functioning works like in thinking long-term, well, let's think about this before I do things affect you. So for those who found themselves in this, I, I want to say that, you know, do not beat yourself up about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. When the medicine stopped working over time, that was just how the body reacts. That's physiology. That wasn't your, your character defect. That wasn't a moral failing. I actually have a great, I, I, I have a great deal of, of, of discomfort uh, and even antagonism to What's often seen in the recovery industry is looking at it from that moral standpoint. I mean, the language about recovery in these in the traditional uh, uh, setups um, is filled with moralizing language, which I think is damaging, and it's not scientifically valid. And we've shown that over the years, as we've demonstrated other species become addicted from chimpanzees to rats to birds. Okay, we don't talk to those species about their moral failings. Okay? Right. Yeah. We need to end that kind of discussion. That is not yep. appropriate. Yep. So for that's what I would say is um, uh, uh, for those who fell into this, it, it give yourself some, you know, reach out for help. Do not beat yourself up. Um, 
and get the treatment you, you need. And for those who, you know, uh, again, for those who haven't gone down that road yet, understand how, how potentially addicting these compounds are and know that you don't want to go down to you. There. You don't want to go, you don't want to go down there. It can happen to you, it can happen to everyone. Mm -hmm. Very good. Nicely stated. Well, thank you for being on my channel. I do appreciate you taking the time to be here today. And oh, uh, thank, thank you very much. I'm uh, uh, happy to have it again sometime. If, if circumstances come up, um, please make sure that those who view uh, have uh, my website where they can uh, contact me if needed and watch my TED talk. I need all the views I can get. I'll put um, it down in the description box down below. It was from a couple of years ago and it definitely needs more views because it was. Yeah, it's, and it's and the stuff I talk about is still valid. Um, yes. So, yes. So if you guys like this video, please share and give it a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell to be alerted to when the next video drops. Thanks for watching. Thank, you, thank you, doctor. You. you have a wonderful day. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.